Trash Box contains adult language and themes. Listener discretion is advised. What's good? What is good, everybody? And welcome to the Crash Box, a film enthusiast talking about films enthusiastically. I am your host, Russell B. Williams, and this is the Weekly Movie Newscast, where I search and compile the stories I find most interesting coming out of the film industry and give you my thoughts and observations on them. Outside of that, we're going to get into the top five grossing movies at the domestic box office and hit up a couple of your listener questions. If you want to get a question to me, just throw me an email at thecrashbox at gmail.com. Any social media site, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all at the Crashbox, or on my website at thecrashboxpodcast.com. Whether you guys are veterans of the podcast or just started listening, but you guys dig what you're hearing and want to show some support, pause this, head over to iTunes, and leave the show a five-star review. You could say whatever you want in the review. It doesn't matter. You prefer Macs over Windows. You could say you like laptops versus tablets. It don't matter. I don't give a shit. It's not for me. It's not for my ego. It's so this show could grow, so it could reach a bigger audience. The only way Apple will start paying attention to the show and start promoting it and suggesting it to other listeners is by those reviews. So please take the two minutes, it only takes two minutes and costs you nothing. Head over to iTunes and leave the show a five star review. So what's good everybody? How was your weekend? Mine's was packed. It really was. I tried to fit in a lot of stuff in a very short window, kind of like last week, but instead of a 24 hour period, I put everything into a 48 hour period. This was nothing truly significant like last week. I wasn't going to some big event like Comic-Con or some other gigantic concert experience like the Game of Thrones. No, this was all media consumption. I banged out two movies in one day, I went to see Bad Times at the El Royale and First Man, then came home, wanted to finish the Ken Burns documentary The Vietnam War, and rewatched Justice League. I didn't watch the entire Vietnam War documentary in one day, that's fucking impossible, it's 10 episodes, each episode is anywhere between an hour and 20 minutes and two hours, but it's so robust, there's so much information in each of those episodes and even still each one of those episodes feels like it's not enough like there should be more packed into it because it goes by so fast ken burns is a genius in documentary filmmaking i just recently found out who ken burns was i know he's a legend in the documentary film space but i just started being put onto him and it's because of this documentary that he's been getting so much name recognition lately. A lot of people I respect, professional and non-professional, who suggest this documentary to people. So I had to check it out. And I'm so glad I did. This isn't like any other documentary, war documentary or not. When I brought up the documentary and started watching it, I started to think 
how much do I actually know about the Vietnam War? Turns out, not that much. Not even near as much as I thought I did. Whenever I think about it, I think of the music that that time produced more than I actually do about the conflict that fueled all these music artists to make that music. The Birds, Credence, Clearwater, The Rolling Stones, Marvin Gaye, Jimi Hendrix, Buffalo Springfield. The moment you hear these songs, it immediately takes you, well at least for me, it immediately takes my mind to that era, even though I've never experienced it. The documentary explores all of that, all of the conflict that fueled these artists to make this music. The division in the country that wasn't, it wasn't just racial. The conflict fucked us up to our core. There is a reason people from that era don't talk about it. The documentary doesn't sugarcoat shit. It explores how we first got involved with Vietnam, what propelled us to go to the other side, how we were afraid to pull out of it because presidents were embarrassed that they were gonna look bad while people were fucking dying, dying because of somebody's fucking ego. It is insane. They go in deep. They talk about individual stories from the American side and the Vietnam side from North and South Vietnam, the Viet Cong, they're interviewing generals, soldiers, and how the conflict affected them. Going back home, whether that meant America or just a couple of miles up the road. But they also draw back slowly, so you could see the individual soldier's story, how that affected the company, how the company affected the larger army, how the army affected the government, how the government had an effect on the country. It is masterfully done. All of this, all this information that's being fed to you, shit that you feel like you'll be in trouble for knowing. All of this with the backdrop of a score from Trent Rasner and Atticus Ross. When it was done, I felt fucked up. I felt sad. I just wanted to hug my mom and my father and my uncles. Everybody who's been through that conflict, who's lived through that time. It is a powerful documentary. It will teach you things that you never knew and flush out things you thought you did. Don't be intimidated by the runtime. Each part is anywhere from an hour and 20 minutes to almost two hours. And there are 10 parts to it. I don't know how this documentary has me yet. I don't know what to do with all this information. I'll tell you this though. On some level, I do feel some sort of satisfaction that I finally have some sort of understanding of what it was like during that time period. Alright, alright, let's shake that off. I was getting my head back into that space of watching it and I don't want to go back there. Alright, let's talk about something just slightly less depressing in Justice League. So remember a couple of weeks ago I said I was going to revisit Justice League because of that conversation me and my brother Edgar had that Steppenwolf shouldn't have been introduced in earlier movies, that he was a great enough threat to rally all these heroes around. Or maybe that the levity and brightness to the movie wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I think I enjoyed it just a little bit more the second time around. I definitely have a newfound respect for Steppenwolf. I think he is a great central villain. 
He didn't seem corny. He didn't seem overplayed. I think he was perfect. There was something bothering me that I couldn't put my finger on it when I first started watching the movie. I think it has to do with something in Zack Snyder. When he directs a film, he has this way of doing a very stylized opening with the credits. He did it with Watchmen, with Batman vs Superman, Sucker Punch, even this one. I don't know, there's something off about this one. I don't know if it's that opening with Batman and the criminal on the rooftops that it looks just like a little too bright or the dialogue seems off or some of the movement and the special effects aren't on point. There's something wrong with it. For the rest of the movie, I was actually enjoying myself for large portions of it. That whole Wonder Woman scene I was on board with, a lot of the shit with Cyborg I was on board with, even some of the stuff with Superman I was on board with. I already enjoy Ben Affleck as Batman and I love Ezra Miller as The Flash so that didn't bother me too much. Where it started fucking with me a little though is when we start getting towards the final third of the movie. Right when the big conflict starts, it started feeling generic. It started feeling not that they were trying to imitate Marvel per se, it just they were like these corny one lines like is this man troubling you or oh I'll come and help you like it was just fucking stupid. I understand why Ben Affleck is leaving the Batman role. This isn't what he signed on for. He signed on to do a really dark really serious unique take on Batman and the Justice League. So after Batman vs Superman came out and they wanted to brighten up everything. He dropped out of directing the Batman and now he wants to pull back from the universe as a whole. After seeing Justice League, I get why he wants to. All is not bad though. Henry Cavill I love as Superman and to me now he is the definitive Superman replacing my childhood Christopher Reeve. And I know to a lot of people that's gonna sound like blasphemy but fucking blow me. I don't care. Henry Cavill is amazing as Superman. Ezra Miller as the Flash. The dude is so charming and funny but in a really geeky kind of way and it totally works for that character. Gal Gadot pretty much owns Wonder Woman at this point so I wasn't worried about her. Ray Fisher as Cyborg totally worked. He was a fresh face and I know he came from predominantly a theater background but that works in his favor here because he does know how to act. He's a talented dude and nobody's really seen him before and you're being introduced to this new character and I wasn't I know of Cyborg I just never read a lot of stuff with him and I just thought the character was super fucking interesting. I love his powers the fact that he can hear or see everything he can manipulate any piece of technology whether it's a really old cell phone or a fucking sophisticated security system. I love all of that I mean and he could fucking fly which is pretty badass. Jason Momoa as Aquaman the moment he was cast he completely redefined who Aquaman is so he was pretty dope but some of his jokes even just weren't hitting its mark for me and I'm not worried about Aquaman because I'm not really looking forward to it that much. I'm looking forward to see 
how Amber Heard and him perform together throughout an entire film. And I'm interested in seeing how James Wan is able to make an entire movie around Aquaman. It some of the action scenes look good. Outside of that, I'm not I'm not really open for it. The one thing I liked, you know what? Fuck it. I loved that they focused on this. No matter how strong Wonder Woman is, no matter how strong Cyborg is, no matter how smart Batman is or how fast the Flash is, the moment Superman showed up, everybody was like, thank fucking God, would you please beat this dude's ass so we could go home? And I love that they focused on Superman being this super overpowered being that even Steppenwolf, that the entire team was having trouble with, was able to beat the shit out of him without even blinking. So, in conclusion, for a second time, I enjoyed Justice League a lot more the second go around, but the same problems still exist within the movie. Now, hopefully, being that they now have this revised thinking and have all the time that they're putting into these movies now, they could make them look like they're supposed to be bright and funny without feeling like the tone is off like it's supposed to be bright and funny but the imagery just feels dark and moody and you have scenes that are really dark and serious versus ones that are bright and corny i'm gonna see aquaman but the one i'm excited for and to see how it fits in this universe is shazam i want to see how shazam acts around superman out of their future movies, Shazam looks like the best one. I mean, it fits their mold of the mentality that they're going forward with, having everything more brighter and funnier and less serious. We don't have a lot of time to wait to find out how this is gonna affect their new films. Aquaman comes out December 14th, and that's right there. Wait, 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 wait. Do me a solid, wait, wait, wait. Stop the music. Dude, uh, throw on something different just to break it up i don't give a fuck what it's gonna do for the file size just change the music all right that works all right now on to the new films that i seen this weekend let's start with bad times at the el royale i didn't know what to expect from the movie i just know after the first trailer i definitely wanted to see the movie so I avoided every other trailer, TV spot, even a fucking poster. I didn't want to see anything because I thought it was going to spoil something. I didn't need to worry about that. The movie's not a whodunit. I mean, it has that what's next vibe with a little mysterious tone thrown in there. But for the most part, it's pretty straightforward. That's what I love about going into a movie knowing as little as possible. You don't bring in any hype or expectations of where the story's gonna go. You get what you get. And for this one, it's totally worth my money. The movie is fun as hell. Drew Goddard, the director, knew exactly the story he wanted to tell and exactly how he wanted to tell it. You could tell, man, he was really confident behind the camera. He knew exactly what he wanted from his actors, how he wanted the shot set up, how he wanted them to be put together in sequence. And that confidence shows and makes you enjoy the movie so much more. It doesn't have this lost identity, whether it wants to be a whodunit or a revenge thriller. No, it is what it is. 
Next to the imagery, which is absolutely gorgeous, by the way, the way each shot is lit and the camera is set up, everything feels well thought out. Well, next to the imagery, it's the way the story is told. The movie is told in segments. You have the main storyline and then you have the backstory to each of the characters. The thing is, it's when they come up. It's when it's relevant in the story. So when these segments come up telling somebody's backstory, it doesn't feel like it's taking away from the main story. It doesn't feel like, no, 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 go back there, go back there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish seeing that. Whenever they leave to flush out somebody's backstory, you want to see that person's backstory. You're already thinking, holy shit, what the fuck made him or her do that? And then right as you're thinking that, this segment comes in to explain everything. That's what I mean about the confidence. He knows the story he wants to tell and how he wants to tell it. The segments don't exist just to bloat the runtime. No, everything feels relevant. Everything feels like it's in its right place and it has the right time. The movie was two hours and 21 minutes and I didn't even notice it. It didn't even feel like I was sitting there for more than two hours. Honestly, it felt like I was sitting there for like maybe an hour and 40 minutes. The reason I looked up the runtime because I felt that it was so short. Well, maybe not short. It was just I had to go to see First Man. So I was wondering how much time I had to go and eat. And it turned out not that much. With this cast, of course, the acting was on point. You had John Hamm, who's his normal, charming self, and he was actually really, really funny in this one. He was playing this Southern business slash door-to-door -door salesman that totally worked for him. A lot of the best jokes in the movie come from him. Dakota Johnson did her thing. She didn't overdo it. She didn't underdo it. She had one really good scene and everything else was kind of okay. They could have replaced her and I wouldn't have known, but it was dope to have her in the cast. Chris Hemsworth plays a cult leader and he's He's really fucking scary because he's so good looking and charming and he has this mass of people around him that do whatever the fuck he wants, however the fuck he wants, when he asks for it. And that doesn't really sound that bad from the outside looking in. But when you see the movie and you see what he has these people doing, I mean, nothing is overly grotesque, but when you... Put yourself in a position that you are at odds with him and he has this entire army with this really vindictive nature to him with a really twisted way of looking at reality. That gets really scary, man. Then we get to Cynthia Erivo. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name, but that's the best I could do. Who I initially thought was Crazy Eyes from Orange is the New Black, but it turns out it's not. She's pretty much a brand new actress. She's been in one major movie called Step from last year, and she's going to be in Harriet next year based on Harriet Tubman. And she fucking killed it. She really did. She had this way of being confident while being vulnerable at the same time, which is incredibly difficult for a person to do when you could tell that they're scared and that they're trying to be brave in spite of that fear or when they're trying to be noble and have maturity in the face of something absolutely disgusting. That's impressive when you consider she is an actress. 
She is supposed to make you believe this. None of this is actually happening to her. She's making you believe that she is scared, but being brave and trying to to get to the next point, to get to the next hour, to get through this night or this day so she could make it out alive. If you were debating on whether you should go and see Bad Times at the El Royale, I definitely suggest you go and check it out. And now we finally get to First Man, Damien Chazelle's follow-up to La La Land, working again with Ryan Gosling, but now we have Claire Foy, Jason Clark, Kyle Chandler, Pablo Schreiber, Lucas Haas. This movie is packed with talent, just like Bad Times at the El Royale. Some characters play bigger ones than others, but everything in this movie, everything coming from the actor's perspective, is fucking magical. You think, you believe you're in that time period. If nobody told you who directed this movie and you went in blind, I guarantee you, you would think this was a Christopher Nolan movie. And I'm not just talking about Interstellar just because it has to deal with space. No, I'm talking equal parts Interstellar and Dunkirk. And I'll get to why I feel like that in a second. But first, I want to talk about what I didn't like about the film. Now, the story is inconsistent. Well, the way it was told was inconsistent. You have points where they absolutely stress, we need to get this done and it needs to be done in this absolutely perfect way or a ship will go wrong. But then a few minutes later, they're kind of glossing over it and as a matter of fact, jumping ahead in time and not fully explaining how the fuck they got from point A to point C without explaining B. This isn't just once or twice. They do it like three or four different times. And it's annoying. This movie has the same exact runtime as Bad Times at the El Royale. And I'm not saying that in a negative way because First Man, I enjoyed the hell out of. This movie isn't fun. It's dramatic and emotional, but also really inspiring. The reason I compared this film to Nolan and not just Interstellar. Now, it's one part in Interstellar where this movie has those wide angle close-ups and it's about a father and his attachment and responsibility to his family, but ultimately having to go on this space exploration mission that takes him away from what he loves. And I bring up Dunkirk is because Chazelle puts you in the cockpit a lot like Nolan did with Tom Hardy in those Spitfires during World War II where everything shaked and rattled and you heard wind flying over your fucking head. It's scary as hell. You don't know what's making that noise, what's rattling, what noise is shaking. Most modern people wouldn't get into that if it was a car making that noise going the fuck home, let alone taking this into war. And in First Man, he puts you in the cockpit along with Ryan Gosling. You hear when he's breaking the sound barrier or going above the atmosphere, all the rattling and things moving around and the winds going over the top of the cockpit. And you're thinking, how the fuck are you planning to go into space with this? 
You could barely get off the fucking ground without things making noise. It spoke a lot to the bravery in those dudes in those early Gemini missions. Could you imagine being in a position like that? You're trying to get to the moon. And the moon isn't just like right there like you cross the fucking street and go into the store. It's not like you go into space and be like, ah, I'm gonna go to the moon. No, that's like a four day journey. That's an extra 238,000 miles. Well, really, it's almost 239, but you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. You could fit, just to put this in perspective, you could fit every single planet and the sun in between the distance of Earth and the moon. Think about that. So it's not that you just get to space and and boom your mission is over no you're going to the fucking moon you promised that you were going to the moon that is the mission so you get to space and now you have this four-day journey where anything could fucking happen and if something does happen this has never been done before there's no fucking manual you can't look up anything online you have to be able to take control of the situation and either fix it or fucking die. Chazelle pays a lot of attention to flesh out the fact that Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and all of these dudes during these missions, these dudes weren't jocks, they weren't rock stars. They were engineers. They were the smart guys in the class. During that time period, they were getting the shit kicked out of them. But he doesn't make them seem like they're super charismatic playboys. No, they are what they are. And I love that. The movie's also funny. Well, not funny funny, but the jokes in there are really smart and well-placed. And it's not like they're every five minutes. No, they're spread out. They're really well thought out and fit the scene really well. There's one joke that, uh, that people are gonna think that is inappropriate. To me, I think it's probably one of the realest moments in the movie. Now, you have this rich cast of male actors led by Ryan Gosling. You have Damien Chazelle directing the film, but who steals the show is Claire Foy, without a doubt. She plays Neil Armstrong's wife and the mother to their children. Another thing that I love about this film is the, the idea of partnership. That was his partner. That wasn't just some token wife that he had kids with. Claire Foy, you could tell, understood this going into her character. She had to be this impeccably strong woman to be married to a dude like Neil Armstrong. We're not just talking about Neil Armstrong, the super famous dude, after he came back from the moon. No, we're talking about all the, all the bullshit, the trials and tribulations he had to go through in order to be that dude. She understood that she needed to raise those kids correctly so they don't grow up to be assholes, but know that she needs to be his everything, his center. When he's falling a little too away from home, pull him back. And the way she does it too. She understands that she needs to give him his space and she needs to be that person to bounce ideas off of. But she also understands when he's straying too far from home or when he's neglecting his duties as a father, she has to put him in check. Like, no motherfucker, you come over here. You need to talk to them. You need to act like a father right now. 
They don't sugarcoat it. They don't sugarcoat the fact that Neil Armstrong was this impeccable dude. He was this person without flaws. He was a human being. And Claire Foy, to me, does the best to ground him as a human, as a person who has a job, who has a family, who has a wife, who has to worry about putting food on the table, whether he's going to die on this mission. She is able to portray that impeccably strong woman that you need to be in a situation like that to raise children under those circumstances, under that type of pressure. The rest of the cast did a great job. Ryan Gosling did a great job. But to me, Claire Foy stole the show. She had the strongest performance. She had the performance where I looked at was like, wow, how could you deal with shit like that? Whereas everything with Neil Armstrong and Ryan Gosling, it was the situation that drew attention to me. Like, wow, that cockpit is shaking that you're in space by yourself or are you going to die on this mission? Claire Foy showed you what it took to make that man. It wasn't just his schooling or his engineering. He needed to have a grounded home life. And whenever he stepped out of line, whenever he strayed too far, the work she had to do to bring him back home, to keep his head on straight. Because if he didn't have her, he would have failed. I got to see this in IMAX. And if you have the opportunity to, Go and see it in IMAX. It's totally worth the ticket, if not for the sound design alone. Everything from a sheet of paper moving, a pen writing on something, a paper clip falling, typing on a keyboard. Even though those things may have been subtle, but they were present and noticeable. All the way up to the big explosions that make you grab your chest like, holy shit! to the thrust from the propulsion, everything was fleshed out so well. That IMAX surround system allows you to feel it. The sound design was brilliant. The direction was really well. Ryan Gosling did a great job and Claire Foy is without a doubt the shining star of the movie. But above all of that is the score to the film. Justin Hurwitz crafted something really, really special with this one. You have the theme that plays throughout the movie with different instruments for different situations. That then, 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 it is haunting. It's gonna stay with you when you're sitting down eating dinner, when you're on your way home, when you're in bed laying down the next day. It's gonna be stuck in your head. I just had to listen to it again so I could properly convey what it makes you feel and I can't get it out. It's sadness, loneliness, pain, but also happiness and triumph all mixed together. It's this weird melancholy mixed with happiness feeling. It is a bizarre thing to experience, but that's the power of a well put together score of music in general, the way it's able to shift your mood, the way it's able to either make you really happy or really sad or really confident or insecure. That is how well this score is put together. And I absolutely love Jason Hurwitz for creating it and Damien Chazelle for actually putting it throughout the film. 
Cause you have that basic thing that But it's playing throughout the film in different instruments during different points in time Whether it's something funny and happy or something really sad But then that ending that final one with the strings with the cellos and violins and that big brass coming uh, it sounds like I'm getting a little too hyped. Go to YouTube. It's up there. Look up The Landing from First Man and tell me you don't get that feeling. Tell me it doesn't touch you in some way. It doesn't have some effect on you. Overall, Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy are gunning with Oscars for this one. I would be surprised if they don't get at least a nomination. Damien Chazelle may be nominated, but those inconsistencies with the story may hold him back. But if the Academy is seeing what I'm seeing, hearing what I'm hearing, feeling what I'm feeling, that score with the imagery that Chazelle puts on, it's kind of hard not to think about it in the category for best director. All right, I know that was really long, but I had to get everything in. I had to make sure I talked about the Vietnam War, Justice League, First Man, and Bad Times at the El Royale, and not just put it off until next week. Those are my feelings on the documentary and films. I want to hear about yours. Did you go and see First Man or Bad Times this weekend? Did you see something else? Did you see Justice League or the Vietnam War? Hit me up. I want to hear about it. I want to hear your point of view, whether you agree with me or not. I love having a talk with you guys. I love having a debate with you guys. Most of all, I love hearing from you guys. So hit me up at the crashbox at gmail.com or any social media site, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat, or at the crash box. And now that we got all that out the way, let's boogie over to the box office. Coming in at number one is Venom in its second week, bringing in $35 million. Domestically stands at 142 million, worldwide 378. On a 100 million dollar budget, not bad. The movie may not be a massive success, but it's definitely not a failure. Like I said, I had fun with the movie. Are there things wrong with it? Yeah. Does it feel a little bland and cliche? Absolutely. But it's still fun. I still feel that if it was released before 2008, this movie would have been received a lot better. Coming in at number two, also in its second week, in a repeat of the top two films from last week, is A Star Is Born. The movie brings in $28 million in its second week, $94 million domestically, $135 worldwide. The difference is this week they actually showed the budget for the movie. The movie cost $36 million, which is, I don't know, that seems like a lot. I was guessing between $25 and $30 million, but $36 seems kind of expensive. But who am I to argue the movie is making bread, the movie is resonating with not only audience but critics as well, so who am I to judge? Alright, coming in at number 3 is the film I just finished talking about, First Man. 
movie brings in 16.5 million dollars on its opening weekend which apparently is a fucking disappointment to everybody I honestly had no desire to see this movie until they started hyping up the fact that you should go and see it in IMAX I'm like well fuck it I'm gonna go see it in IMAX the movie brings in 16.5 domestically 25 million dollars worldwide on a 59 million dollar budget I'm sure the movie is gonna pick up in the coming weeks it may not shoot up to number one but it's definitely gonna stay in the top five over the course of the next few weeks Coming in at number 4 in its opening weekend is Goosebumps 2 Haunted Halloween. Movie brings $16.2 million in its opening weekend, $19 million worldwide on a $35 million budget. Number 5 is Smallfoot, the animated film bringing in $9 million in its third week. 57 million dollars domestically 110 worldwide no budget listed but who gives a shit i usually don't do outside of the top five anymore but i wanted to give an update on bad times at the el royale movie came in at number seven with seven million dollars domestically 11 million dollars worldwide on a 32 million dollar budget all right let's run them down Number one, Venom. Number two, A Star is Born. Number three, First Man. Number four, Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween. And number five, Smallfoot. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your top five grossing movies at the domestic box office. Now, let's hit up the news. All right, first up, Disney has finally released a teaser to Aladdin and it doesn't really show much but it wasn't supposed to it was just supposed to wet your beak like look what's coming next year I mean I grew up in this era this I was like 12 when this movie came out as a matter of fact this is what everybody in school called me for about five years after this movie came out I know I'm from New York I have a New York accent my skin tone will lead you to believe I'm actually Spanish, but I am not. I am half Indian. So when the kids at school found that out, this is all they could call me. Even though Aladdin's Persian, technically Arab. The teaser opens with a shot of the desert, of course, and you see the city from really far away, but you do get to see the parrot, even though it's from the back, but you see him flying around, and then it goes to the cave with the panther face on it, and it has the voice, all winter here, with that really deep, ominous thing, the diamond in the rough. I'm gonna start choking. <laughs> But no, they have all of that in there and it gets you hyped up and you hear like a little bit of Arabian Nights in the background played by like a new orchestra. But what got me, what what got me that it, I didn't expect for it to have such an effect on me is hearing friends like me with that big orchestra, even though the original had an orchestra to it. But this one feels a lot more contemporary and it feels more epic. It is so good. Obviously, I like music with with instruments, with violin strings. I love orchestra music. So this got me and it, it, it made me smile the moment it came on and I couldn't help it. Right at the very end, you see Mina Masoud as Aladdin going to grab the genie. Wait, not the genie. He goes to grab the lamp that has the genie in it. But he looks good as Aladdin with the outfit on with his 
face all shaved <laughs> shaved and um done up as aladdin he looks good the movie looks good you see the entire cave or cavern and you see all the gold traveling really far into the background it kind of reminds me of smaug's lair in the hobbit but either way then you see that really tall peak that has the lamp on top of it it got me open and i didn't I wasn't really hyped for this. I mean, I was excited because Guy Ritchie was directing it. I know a lot of people are having doubts about that. I don't get that anymore. When I was younger, I used to love Guy Ritchie because he was so fresh and hip and his movies were really funny while being dead serious at the same time. And it wasn't like anything else. Even now, as he's grown into a more mature director, Look at his films. You got Lock, Stock, and Snatch. You got Rock and Roller, Sherlock Holmes 1 and 2. And I don't understand why so many people don't like King Arthur. King Arthur was awesome. He did with King Arthur what he did with Sherlock Holmes. He made it contemporary while still being a period piece. Bringing fresh ideas, fresh antics to that role. And I found it absolutely refreshing. I can't stand watching another take of King Arthur and it being the same old boring shit that we've seen a thousand times that they say is going to be a new take when it really isn't. I thought he did a great job with that and I have absolute confidence in him. This teaser does nothing to prove or disprove my point. It's just a collection of images from iconic scenes from the original movie with some of the iconic music from the original movie. This teaser just exists to let you know, like, look what's coming next year. I'm super happy that Disney is starting to explore this part of their history. This was Disney's second golden age with uh, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. This is gonna be great. I can't wait to see Mulan. But first, we need to see how this turns out and I'm hyped for it. Next! This next one isn't technically movie news, but it feels relevant. A few episodes ago, somebody wrote in asking me if I were to pick someone to do a music biopic on, who would it be? And I picked Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang, I grew up with. It was a part of my entire teenage life. Even still, I still get excited with their albums dropping. That new Logic joint I'm bumping right now. They're not doing a movie or a documentary. They're doing a scripted series on Hulu. Now, that may sound weird because it's not a film. It's not really a documentary. It's a scripted series. And this, when I started to think about it, it made sense because there's so many moving parts within the Wu-Tang Clan. Its core members, there are nine of them. You got the genius, Rizza, Yugard, Master Killer, Old Dirty Bastard, Method Man, Ghostface Killer, Raekwon, and Inspector Deck. And if you count Cappuccino, well, Cappadonna, he became a member a few years ago, actually, not that long ago, but he's been a part of the group for years. That's 10 people, 10 people with individual stories on where their lives were, what they were doing, what strife they were going through. When RZA had this idea, this five-year plan to bring these dudes all together, some of them having beef with one another so they could create something that has never been done before. 
that whole thing Marvel's doing now, where they split up, do individual movies, and then come together for one big one, well, Wu-Tang was doing that years before. Back in, what, 93, they released their first album? They released their first album with everybody together, and then they split up and started releasing individual albums. You had Method Man first, then Old Dirty Bastard, the classic purple tape only built for Cuban links with Raekwon, then you had Ghostface, it goes on and on. And then when they're done releasing all their albums, they come back together for Wu-Tang Forever, which went like four or five times platinum. Then they split back up and do their individual things again. What's so dope, the Marvel analogy goes twofold. When Wu-Tang first came out, they all adopted Marvel aliases. So Method Man is Johnny Blaze, aka Ghost Rider. Ghostface Killer is Tony Stark, aka Iron Man. That's why if you see in the very first Iron Man, when Tony is on the jet with Rhodey, in the background you see a Ghostface video playing. There's actually a deleted scene where Tony Stark is walking towards the jet and Ghostface is walking away from the jet and they acknowledge one another. I'm really excited for this, but I'm also really worried. Being that it's going to Hulu and not Netflix or even Amazon, are they gonna have the same artistic freedom that Netflix and Amazon gives their creators? Are they gonna be able to curse? Are they gonna be able to explore the extreme drug use? ODB was a crackhead. Raekwon used to smoke blunts laced with coke. Are they gonna be able to show all of that? Are they gonna be able to show these characters, these people that we're supposed to be sympathetic towards, robbing people, shooting at people, doing drugs and all this other crazy nefarious shit? The only thing I've used Tulu for is to re-watch Fargo and that Scientology documentary that Leo Remini was doing. Oh wait, I did see one of the originals. I did see The Looming Tower, which was really good, but I, I don't know if that translates to whether the Wu-Tang show is going to be able to have the artistic freedom because The Looming Tower showed some crazy shit and talked about some crazy shit and even used some adult language, but I don't know if it's going to be to the extreme that we're going to need it for this Wu-Tang show to feel authentic. This is being produced by the RZA himself and all the other core members are signed on to be consultants for their individual characters. So it does seem like everything is in place for it to be the best show it could be. It's just, I'm a little worried about that. Next! Speaking of Guy Ritchie, I didn't even know that he had a new project in the works. And of course, it sounds like something totally him. Check this synopsis out. A very British drug lord tries to sell off his highly profitable empire to a dynasty of Oklahoma billionaires. That sounds fucking hilarious. I could totally see Guy Ritchie's stamp all over that. The reason I found out about this, the reason I heard about this, 
they just added a new cast member in Henry Golding. Now, he is the lead, well, one of the leads in Crazy Rich Asians. He plays the main dude that uh, the girl's trying to marry, I guess? So, after I read that article, I went to look it up and see what I could find out. I found out the synopsis, and I also found out that Kate Beckinsale is finally working with Guy Ritchie and also Matthew McConaughey. Holy shit! He has to be playing one of the billionaires, but I hope Kate Beckinsale is playing one of the British characters. I love when she is using her natural British accent. It complements her so well, even though she's a great actress. She can do almost any accent and make you believe that. I really do like when she's in her native tongue. It fits her very well. And Matthew McConaughey, working with Guy Ritchie come on this is awesome there is no other information out there no release dates no nothing I had to scour online to find a credible source for the synopsis and the rest of the cast I'm pretty sure they're gonna be updating IMDB any day now probably tomorrow the day after but it's the point I had to go through that headache Ugh. It was totally worth it to know that Guy Ritchie is going back to what he does best. Next! And lastly, I originally intended to talk about the new Glass trailer that dropped. And if you haven't seen it, go check it out. The story gets fleshed out more. You see the rivalry between Dunn and Elijah. You see how the split character works into the frame of the story. And that's dope! But we all know that's coming out already. We're all hyped up already. We all have our tickets practically already for that movie. So I figured there's nothing more I could really add to it. There's nothing more I could do to hype myself up or hype you guys up for. So I figured I'll talk about something that I don't think anybody else is really talking about. And that's the trailer to the new Clint Eastwood movie, The Mule. That's right, it's called The Mule, M-U-L-E, and it means exactly what you think it means. Clint Eastwood is playing a drug mule. The trailer doesn't show or even explain how he becomes a drug mule, and I'm pretty sure the movie is going to explain all of that, and as a matter of fact, I hope it stays that way. I would much rather find out while I'm watching the film than in a trailer. What it does show is him being a drug mule. Him taking the drugs from whatever cartel he's working for to the correspondent they have in this country. It also shows that he has this incredibly damaged relationship with his family. Him and his family are under this really big financial burden. I'm pretty sure that's all the motivation he needed to do something like this. It may not be the right thing to do, but it's something to do. You're able to help your family, you're able to give your family some sort of life, but you also have to weigh the extreme violence that comes along with it. That has to be an unbelievable predicament to be in. To be under such a strain that you're looking at your family going hungry, losing their house, and here is this one one little sliver of hope and I'm saying hope for that reason because it may not like I said it may not be the right thing to say but it's something 
when you can't get a job even at fucking McDonald's or waiting tables or picking up shit off the sidewalk? What do you do? What kind of position do you put yourself in? You have to outweigh your family going hungry, your family going homeless, and then put them in the face of extreme danger if anything goes wrong. That is an impossible position to be in. When you see the trailer, you see some of this turmoil going on within him. Him coming to terms with the fact that he was a dirtbag. He was a fucking douchebag of a father. He was an asshole of a husband. But here he is now trying to make up for it. Trying to be some sort of resemblance of a good person. Even though he's doing something extremely bad. While all of this is going on. Him being a drug mule. Him trying to repair the damage he has caused within his family. Of course the DEA shows up. Of course he gets heat on his back. Of course he's going to be put in a position where he has to worry about his family being either harmed by the drug cartel or being imprisoned by the federal government. Because of course that's what happens when you become a drug mule. But this goes back to the impossible decision of outweighing homelessness and hunger with those consequences. From what I could see in the trailer, Bradley Cooper, Michael Pena, and Lawrence Fishburne are playing DEA agents. Andy Garcia might be playing the drug lord, I'm not sure, and it doesn't say on his IMDb, but then look at the rest of the cast. You got Allison Eastwood, his daughter, Clifton Collins Jr., Dan Weiss, Joe Flint. Clint Eastwood rarely has a miss, and it's usually never about acting. Well, except for that 1517 to Paris experiment that he was doing, and I'm not discounting what they went through. I'm just saying that they're not fucking actors, so save your keystrokes, okay? This film looks good. It really does. If you see the trailer, it really invokes Sicario, and I have to believe that's the inspiration for this. It looks and feels just like it. It really does. This looks so much like a Sicario sequel that if you took out Clint Eastwood, I would have thought it was a Sicario sequel. That muted color palette, that ominous score, the way they set up the shots, especially the one of the SWAT team doing the raid. Bottom line is, the trailer is fantastic. It does its job. It pulls you in and makes you want to see this movie. It makes you want to understand what put him in that position, what he's going to do when he needs to get out, and what happens when the government gets involved. The movie drops in December, but I suggest everybody go and check out the trailer right now. All right, that is it for the news. Now, let's set up a couple of your questions. All right, first up is from Dina. Dina? Dina? 206? I'm sorry I'm mispronouncing your name. Let's go with Dina. 206, and she asks, If I want to get into classic anime movies, where should I start? Well, thank you, Dina206, for the question. This is one that I was kind of torn with. It was something that I had to think about for a little while, but I got it down. 
and it hurts me to know that the anime movies I grew up with are now considered classics. I mean, I'm actually kind of happy because these are the gems and I'm pretty sure that they make pretty good anime movies now and I just haven't been paying attention to them as much as I should be. But she didn't ask for new movies, she asked for classics and where you should start is definitely Akira. Akira is the godfather of all anime movies, modern and classic. This is the big swinging dick. It was the first one to do it up big, do it with this grand storyline with adult language, sexual content, and nudity. It had all of it, all while being this incredibly emotional story about this orphan, this this kid dealing with rejection from society and the people he looks up to the most. And what happens when that person who's considered weak and being beaten down by everyone around him, what happens when he gets unlimited power? And I'm not talking about in the governmental sense or society sense. I'm talking actual power where he could move shit with his mind. It is fantastic to look at. The score is amazing. You should definitely start with the Kara. Now this is where I started having trouble which should be the second pick because I'm picking three. I'm picking the three movies that I think would have the biggest influence on you and my number two pick is Ninja Scroll. The original name of the movie is called Ninja Chronicles over in Japan but the American version where you could find everywhere is called Ninja Scroll. It has everything that makes anime great. It has an adult storyline, adult content and language, but the action is amazing and the way the animation quality is, especially when you consider for the time it was done. It is just incredible. It is my number two all-time anime movie. It's just a great anime. Especially the characters, the unique characters that they put on display. Especially the adversaries that get thrown in the main character's way. It is absolutely magic. Look up the trailer for it. It's awesome. And the third and final anime movie I'm suggesting is Ghost in the Shell, the original animated movie from 1995. I was actually torn on whether I should suggest this or not. The film tends to alienate a lot of its audience and that's because they feel that they can't follow it or understand it and I'm not calling those people stupid or saying that the movie is super smart. No, it's ambiguous. You take away from it what you want. There is definitely a central theme throughout the movie, but between the action and what the themes are suggesting and just the way everything comes together, this was one of the first movies that actually blended CG animation with traditional animation. It is incredible. The Scarlett Johansson one didn't really bring it to life the way we hoped it would. And they got a lot of the imagery right. They just didn't get what made the story and what made the original movie so special to begin with. They simplified the story and that was its biggest mistake. If you don't get bored with it and stick with it, it is a fantastic experience. So that's Akira, Ninja Scroll, and Ghost in the Shell. All right. 
Thank you, Dina206, for the question. And on to the next one. And that is from Desiree on Instagram. And she asks, who do you think will win in a fight? George Lucas or Steven Spielberg? All right. Thank you, Desiree, for the question. And if I had to pick one, I, I'm going to assume Steven Spielberg. Because only in the fact that he looks a little more fit than George Lucas. And I'm not saying George Lucas can't fight. Actually, that's exactly what I'm saying. I don't think George Lucas could fight. And neither I don't think Steven Spielberg could fight either. But if they were thrown into some pit and they had to fight, my money's on my money's on Spielberg just because he's a little thinner, he's a little sleeker, and it'll <laughs> the absurdity of this question. Oh my god. Only because Steven Spielberg looks like he probably works out once a week, once a month maybe. And that's the that's the only reason. Alright, thank you Desiree for the question. And alright, let's wrap this shit up. I would like to thank all of you for tuning in this week. I would like to thank Desiree and Dina206 for their questions. If you want to get a question to me, just throw me an email at thecrashbox at gmail.com or any social media site, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or Twitter, all at The Crash Box. And now that you're at the end of the show, if you have not already, please take the two minutes, pause this, Head over to iTunes and leave the show a five-star review. And also, I wanted to bring up, if you guys are telling other people about the show, please tell them to skip my first episodes because they suck fucking balls. Tell them to listen to a current episode and then go back to see how much I've improved. Not to start with my earlier ones because they are so fucking bad. But I'm leaving them up for your entertainment. I know the show went long this week, but I just wanted to make sure I got everything that I said I was going to talk about within the show. But thank you guys for sticking with me. All right, guys, girls, and all you awesome bastards in between. Remember, don't get bogged down by bullshit. Life is better in the abstract. I'm up out of here. Peace. One love. L-A-T-A. Chicka